Our scripture lesson today uh, is known as the Shema, uh, the great commandment that Jesus teaches the disciples and us, uh, but he is quoting this Old Testament passage uh, that the people learned right before they went to the promised land. It's found in Deuteronomy 6. Let's share in God's good word together. Attention, Israel, God, our God, God, the one and only. Love God, your God, with your whole heart. Love him with all that's in you. Love him with all you've got. Write these commandments that I've given you today on your hearts. Get them inside of you and then get them inside your children. Talk about them wherever you are, sitting at home or walking in the street. Talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to when you fall into bed at night. Tie them on your hands and foreheads as a reminder. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your homes and on your city gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Have you all ever worked for two bosses? It's a beating, right? Any of y'all just love the day when you get to go back to work because you've had like 18 bosses at your family's house, right? Mom wants this, dad wants that, Uncle Bob wants this, Aunt Jenny wants that, cousin Bob wants this, your nephew wants that, and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. Duplicity is a killer, isn't it? When you you just don't know how to, to manage all the competing voices in your life. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll go to my inbox, and I, I, I'm a sucker for a good headline. Uh, and so I'll, I'll subscribe to these things that are supposed to make me a better preacher or teacher or pastor. But I tell you, as I read the headlines, I just, just something sinks inside of me. It's, it's like 10 ways to be a better preacher, 11 ways to see if you're an emotionally healthy pastor, 42 different ways to, to increase baptisms at your church. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just got 60 things to do before noon. And, and I just, the weight of it, it so I unsubscribe. And then try again. Try something. Does this, does this resonate with you? That when you, when you open up your email in the morning and you have 72 emails and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wouldn't it be great if you could wake up in the morning and you only had to answer to one voice? Wouldn't that be freeing? If you just had one boss, if you only had one person to please, if you only had one thing you had to do each day, wouldn't that be awesome? Well, that's actually the case. That's what Jesus says. You only have one thing to do every day. When I was in seminary and I was completely overwhelmed, I had a buddy named Bill, and and I was was whining. I'm a whiner. I do it. I whine. I'm sorry. It just happens sometimes. And I'm like, oh, boo-hoo-hoo, this test and this thing and this paper, and, you know, I'm I'm 40 pages short of this thing over here, and blah, 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 blah. And Bill just looked at me, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Mark, you know my grandma used to say? I'm like, no, Bill, I have no idea. He He was from South Carolina. He said, you know what my grandma used to say? I said, no, Bill, what? And he said, all you got to do is die. That's what Granny says. All you got to do, because I was like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do that. He goes, no, all you got to do is die. And that's right. All you gotta, so, so let's just push everything aside. We have one life, one God, one voice. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And, and I think Gandhi was onto something when he said, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. It's called being integrated, right? So that you don't have to wonder, like, what am I going to do in that situation or that situation? No, no, no. You are who you are. God tells you who you are. One voice. And it actually evens life out. You're actually able to live in peace and strength and stand firm because you're the same person no matter where you go. When, when what you think and what you say and how you live, when that's all integrated, when you do that in harmony, that's where happiness and joy flourishes and so god says well let's live that way then just follow me one commandment follow me with all your heart all your mind all your soul all your strength 
when I was preparing for the sermon this week, I thought to myself, you know, we just have too many gods. We have too many gods. And too many gods makes us miserable. We think it's going to make us happy because they're so shiny and, and new or this or that. We think, oh, if I could only have this or I could only do that or I could have this experience or that thing. But those gods fail us. Too many gods makes us miserable. And so from the very beginning of the people of God walking into that promised land, walking into that promise, God says this to them in Deuteronomy 6. He says, this is the commandment, the rules and the regulations that God, your God, commanded me to teach you to live out in the land you're about to cross into to possess. Well, which land is that? Well, it's the very land he's promised them all along, the land of milk and honey. See, they have been 400 years in slavery under Egypt, and they're free from that, but they're lost as a goose. They're wandering around in the wilderness. They can't get things right. They don't know how to live together. None of them have ever led. They've always been slaves. They don't, they don't know how to do this yet. And God says, well, before I give you everything you've ever wanted, let's make sure that first things are first. Let's make sure that we stay connected. Let's remember where we came from so that we know how to live where we're going. And so I'm, I'm about to teach you what you need, uh, and you're about to cross into to this land that you're about to possess. So that you'll live in deep reverence before God all your life, observing all his rules and regulations that I'm commanding you, you and your children and your grandchildren, living good, long lives. Now, this was interesting to me because what the scripture is telling us is there's about to be a change, there's about to be a shift, that God's children are moving into a new culture. Any of you all follow the news and, and realize that we're moving into a new culture? I mean, I, I know that as people get older, they say that, you know, the world's, you know, ending and all that. But, but I got to tell you, when, this week when I see a shooter in Fort Lauderdale and I see um, people broadcasting the abuse of a mentally handicapped man, it's a different day in our country. It's a different culture. And the question is, how do we live in that new culture? The very vision and values that I grew up with in the 60s and 70s and, and some in the 80s even are not the same as they are today. They're not the same for our children and certainly not for our grandchildren. And certainly won't be for our great-grandchildren. What is this culture that we're living into? The scripture today is as new as ever. We are moving into a new culture. And what do you do when that happens? Well, fortunately for us, God tells us in his word. They're moving into uh, a new culture. They're about to move into a land of milk and honey. But that new land has competing gods. That new land uh, belongs to the Canaanites and the Canaanite religion. In Canaan, people believed in one supreme God, but other gods and goddesses served as helpers as well. Now, that's beginning to look more and more like our culture, isn't it? Where, yeah, it's okay if you like God, but you also have this or you have that. So, you know, pray if you want to, but be sure and have your, you, you know, your horseshoe and your rabbit's foot and, and whatever else. You know, kind of hedge your bets because, you know, what if God doesn't come through? Then you better have a backup plan. That's how a lot of people live today. God's okay for those people, but let's, let's also, you know, do the things we need to do to make sure that we're okay. And, and God says, no, 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 that doesn't work. You serve me and me alone. There, there are no other competing gods, even if the culture that you're moving into lives differently. And so God's promise is this in verse 3. God says, listen, obedient, my people, Israel. Do what you're told so that you'll have a good life. So that you'll have a good life. If you do what God's asking you to do, you'll have a good life. That's the promise. A life of abundance and bounty, just as God promised, in a land abounding and milk and honey. So if you boil it down, what this says is, obey God and have a good life. Obey God and have a good life. Now, at this point, I know that there's bound to be somebody in the room that goes, that's not always true. I know somebody who lived a great life and they died of cancer anyway. Does that happen? Yeah. 
But here's the thing, friends. In our entertainment, advertising culture, we have become a culture of the exception, not the rule. Right? Any of you all watch a TV program called The Sixth Hour of Your Workday? No. Nobody's interested in that. What we're interested in, right, is the exception. I I used to be in journalism. Many of you all know that. Uh, And my professor would say, you know, when a dog bites a man, that's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that's news. Right? Because we live for the exception. And because we are now living in a culture that lives for the exception, we can forget the truth of the rule. And the truth of the rule is that God has put laws and order in the world for your good. And if you follow them, more often than not, like 80, 90 plus percent of the time, life tracks out that way. Right? Life just doesn't happen by accident, even though um, oftentimes it may feel that way. So God says, obey me and have a good life. That's the way it really does work most of the time. It's by God's gift, and we live into it. And the more we live into it, the better our life is. All of God's teachings and laws that Jesus teaches us are for our good, for your good. And and the thing that we don't do very well, it's it's not in the culture almost at all, is what is the calculated cost of non-discipleship? We know that to follow Jesus costs us everything, but have you ever stopped and considered what life is like when you don't follow Jesus? What happens in your own family, in your own life, in your own heart, in your community, in your nation, in the world, when people just toss Jesus' teaching aside and say, you know what? I'm not going to live for love. I'm not going to live for others. I'm not going to live in community. I'm just going to live for myself. And whatever happens, happens. Well, if you live in that world, you better be the strongest guy, the smartest, with the most money, with the most weapons, with the most secure, everything, or you're going down. Because Jesus is the only way for the salvation of the world. His teaching of love and forgiveness and mercy. And when we begin to push that aside, everything starts to come apart. And we're seeing that in lots and lots of ways. And and so we need to calculate the cost of non-discipleship. What does it cost you? What does it cost your family? What does it cost the people around you when you simply choose not to be obedient to the Lord? More than we think. Because there's no such thing as sinning in isolation. There's no way that you can separate yourself from the love of God and not expect that to affect your children. It does. You can't help it. So God says this. He says, attention, Israel. God, our God. God, the one, the one and only. Love God, your God, with your whole heart. Love him, all that's in you. Love him with all you've got. And when that happens, beautiful miracles start to roll out of that. Write these commandments that I've given you today on your hearts. Get them inside of you and then get them inside your children. Well, what commandments is he talking about? He says, well, well, before we get there, talk about them wherever you are. Talk them through, right, with other people. Sitting at home or walking in the street, talk about them from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed at night. Tie them on your hands, your foreheads as a reminder. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your homes and on your city gates. What, what God is saying is, look, my laws, my life, my rule of life needs to be in you and your families in such a way that no matter where you live, no matter where you go, it can't be undone. And you know what most people's response is? Okay, wait a minute. The Bible says to put um, the Torah on my doorpost, so I will. So for $14.95, you can go on Etsy and get a mezuzah and and put it on your door. And if you go to Israel or you you know very religious people, they'll have these on their doors because the Bible says it. I did it. I'm done. Good for me. Right? I mean, that'd be easy. $14.95 in any color. Right? Does that change your life? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, if you can unroll that tiny little scroll in there. I mean, they're like that big. And, and maybe if you begin to put that in your life, if it's a reminder to step you into the faith of God, then yeah, maybe 
But no, it's not magic. We don't worship amulets. We worship a living God that's trying to teach us, trying to be in relationship with us every day of our life, no matter where we go. And one of the things that's crazy to me is that I'm, I'm seeing this more and more where people sort of live one way in their normal work day in life, and they live another way when they're out of town. Is the whole whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of a thing? That's not true. It's not true, particularly if you have a social media account. It's really not true, <laughs> right? And you might be fired when you get home, Right? God says we are to be integrated, the same person, no matter where we go, no matter who we're with, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, that we are to be people of his commandments. Well, what commandments are those? Well, they're the Ten Commandments. If you have your Bible with you and you go back just one chapter, you're going to see in chapter 5 all the Ten Commandments. God says these are the things that are going to keep you safe. These are the things that will help you live well. These are the things that will make your children and grandchildren live well if, if you follow them, if you follow them. And number one is this, no other gods, only me. That's what he says, none, none other. You don't get to mess around, right? And, and, and those of us who are married, you know this to be true. You don't stand before your spouse and say, I will love you and whoever else happens to come into my life that's better looking than you or whoever else stops by with a little more money or is a little easier to live with in this season. Anybody signing up for that? Don't raise your hand. It's bad, <laughs> right? No, nobody's signing up for that, right? One, if you want to be in relationship, you got to be in relationship with one. One other person in that kind of intimate relationship. No other gods. And, and then the scripture goes on. He says, so no carved gods of any size? I mean, not just, not just one god, but, but nothing that even resembles that. So no graven images. Uh, you don't bow down to them. You don't bow down. You don't praise anything but God. Right? You serve one God. You praise one God. And you don't serve them. Because I am your God, your God. And I'm a most jealous God, God says. Look, I love you, and, and you're my bride, and, and I'll give everything for you, even my own self in Jesus, everything that I am, but don't cross me. Because if I'm going to give you everything, then that needs to be reciprocal, right? God says, listen, I'm going to hold parents responsible for any sins that they pass on to their children, to the third, and yes, even the fourth generation. Now, this seems really harsh for those of us who know Jesus in his heart and his love for all of humankind. But we also know that if you're very old at all, um, and you, you study alcoholism, addiction, uh, sexual trauma, you know this to be absolutely true. It's axiomatic. If grandpa's an alcoholic, that affects the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids. It just does. Even if the kids are teetotalers, then you get a whole other set of problems for the grandkids and the great-grandkids. Right? I mean, it's, 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 it changes the whole dynamic. And it's true what happens, and we need to pay attention to this. We need not mess around with other gods, other spirits, in a way that will wreck your life and other people's lives. And then, but check this out, God says, but I'm lovingly loyal to thousands, not just a few generations, but to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. These commandments are for your good, for your safety, for your health, for your welfare, for your kids and your grandkids. So worship only me, and don't mess around with any of their other stuff, because it'll hurt you. It'll really hurt you. And then he says this, no using the name of God, your God, in curses or silly banter. God won't put up with the irreverent use of his name. Be silly. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this one has almost gone out of our culture. I mean, I don't, I don't even hear people getting upset about it anymore. I can remember I got really frustrated when I was a freshman in high school with algebra. I was sitting at the dining room table, and my sister was playing the piano, and I was like, shut it, Deborah, because I was just so frustrated. You know how you get to that, and they're like extraneous noise. I'm trying to concentrate. And my mom came in to 
you know, basically say, look, your sister is practicing her piano. Look, she knows when she can practice her piano. I'm, you know, she's just messing with me. And I say, mom, are you kidding me? And then I use the Lord's name in vain. Actually, I used the Lord's name, God, out of frustration, as in like, come help me, Jesus, right? She slapped me out of that chair. Now, granted, she'll tell you I was leaning back a little bit, but she slapped me flat out of a chair (laughs) as a freshman. God, wham! And there I went. Now, don't hit your kids. No, not your preacher said, no. Never hit your kids. But the thing is, you need to be careful with God's name. The Jews revered it in such a way that they wouldn't even say it out loud. And they would rarely write it. Because it was so holy, so other. And I think our culture is missing this incredible reverence that we need to understand that there is a God who made the sun that is so powerful. If you go outside without sunblock, it will burn you thousands of miles away. This is the God we serve. He's very big and very powerful. And he loves you. But honor him. Really honor him. All the time. And teach your kids to honor him. It's a big deal. It matters. The kind of language we use around God and God's people and how we treat others. Don't misuse God's name. Don't misuse anybody's name for that matter, but certainly not God's, the creator of heaven and earth. And then, and then while we're on stuff that's kind of the culture's just kind of tossing away these days, uh, don't work on the Sabbath. Any you guys or gals work from home? I mean, when are you working? When are you, when are you not working? Uh, one of the things that's really frustrating to me is uh, there, are, there are weeks in my life where I feel like I'm never really getting anything done, but I'm really never not working. Maybe y'all feel like that when you, when you got all the emails and you got all the requests and you got all the people making demands of you. And, and it's really important that your family knows when you're working and when you're not working. Right? When, when is that? So God says work six days. That's really important. Work hard six days. Do everything you have to do, but on the seventh day, that Sabbath. And sleep studies will tell you, by the way, that actually you can make up sleep within seven days, but not at eight. Seven days. God actually has made your body where you can recover on that seventh day if you'll honor it. It's for your good. It's for your health. No work on that day. Not you, not your kids, not your daughters, not your staff, none of it. So for us, um, Fridays, our church is Sabbath. All of our staff. And so I don't work, um, and, and none of the staff works on that day. Now, granted, if, if somebody is dying in the hospital, uh, we have a plan for that, of other people to help get that covered, or somebody can take a Sabbath on a different day. But, but for us... Sabbath, we don't, we don't plan anything. We don't work on that day because God has made us and we want to model that for the church. And we want to model that for you. When, when are you going to rest? When are you going to trust God to renew you? No work on the Sabbath. And then this one, my cousin Cliff used to say, hey, Mark, he was like a year and a half older than me. He said, you've got to respect and honor me because I'm your elder. He was from Ozark, Alabama. And I said, Cliff, quit it. And, uh, and my, my sister, Deb, who's like two years older, she's like, yeah, you should do that. That's not what this means at all. The commandment is this. Respect your father and mother. God, your God, commands it. You'll have a long life. The land that God is giving you will treat you well. You have to honor your, the older ones among you. After they have retired, when they don't work, when they don't give productivity to the community, when they actually cost you, when, when it's time for the nursing home. Because here's the thing. This is how we, this is how we confuse this. Look at if, if you're like me and you're 220, you don't need any help getting respect from the three-year-olds, right? right? You pick them up, you put them down. You, you do what you need to do with the little kid. That's not what this is about at all. This is about when you're 49 and your parents are 78 and 82, now it's on. 
This is when they need your respect. This is when they need your care. This is when they need your attention. This is when it's most difficult. These are the conversations we need to have. And our culture is largely losing this one too, right? We have to respect our parents, our elderly parents who are on the very edge of life and closest to Jesus, closest to the passing on. They know stuff and they need to be able to pass it on, but we're not going to learn it if we don't see them, if we don't talk to them, if we don't know that. And so as frustrating as as it might be uh, to have a little one, that's not what this is about at all. This is about adult children honoring their elderly parents. Because certainly if you're moving from the wilderness into a new land, it's easy to leave them behind. They don't go as fast as the pack. And then the others get really simple, right? No murder. Hopefully don't spend any time there. Uh, No adultery, right? No stealing. Really, no stealing. Not cheating. Your business, not cheating the government, not cheating your neighbor, no stealing. And you don't get to lie about your neighbor. And you don't get to hanker after their stuff. No coveting um, about their house or their field or their servant or their maid or their ox or their donkey. You see, God knows this very well. It's like, because like, well, I don't really want that of my neighbors, but that thing over there, yeah. Any of y'all ever go to your, your neighbor's house uh, and, and you're having a great time until you realize that everything they own is nicer than yours? Everything. Like, even the tile is better. I mean, how does that happen? Right? You're like, oh. And then, and then God basically says, no lying, no lusting. Right? This is, this is the teaching for us. Now, why is this so important? Why is God on this so hard? Well, because this is, this is the truth about the Hebrews as they move. And it's true about us as well. It took one day to get the Hebrews out of Egypt. God did that in a day. Right? Just took them on out. But it took God 40 years to get the Egypt out of the Hebrews. Right? He had to let an entire generation die off before they were ready to move on, to live in this new culture, in this new way, to be faithful to God and God alone, and to teach their children and grandchildren everything that they would need to live in this new, this new culture. And, and, and God says this, talk about these things, friends. Talk about the commandments. Talk about why they're important. Teach them to, their, to your children. Ha, talk about them in your home. Talk about them in your small group. Talk about them in worship. Live them at home and away, both. You're the same person at home and when you're on vacation. Same person when you're at home and when you're away working. Same person. And when God, your God, ushers you into the land that he promised through your ancestors, right? Land of milk and honey. You're going to walk into large, bustling cities that you didn't build. You're going to walk into well-furnished houses you didn't buy, and you're going to come upon wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. All right? And when you take it all in and settle down, pleased and content, Make sure you don't forget, never forget, friends, how you got there, that God brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Deeply respect God, your God, serve and worship him exclusively, alone, one. Back up your promises with his name only, and don't fool around with other gods, the gods of your neighbors, because God, your God, who is alive among you, is a jealous God. Don't provoke him, igniting his hot anger that would burn you right off the face of the earth. Eugene Peterson's not messing around here, is he? It's like, look, here it is. Now, why, why does this have such a harsh tone? Why, why, why would anyone ever forget the goodness of God, the grace of Jesus, the one that has saved us fully? Why? Because when life is easy, we forget, don't we? We forget. How many of you all um, dug the well at your home that you drink from? Anybody? No, when you turn on the water, it's there for you. You, you basically did almost nothing to get that water. Right? It's just, it's just there for you. It's easy to forget that somebody had to dig the well or, or lay the pipe or, or put together the entire infrastructure that you live on 
How many of you, when you came to church today, were thanking God for the good roads you drove on? Or the police protection that, that allows you uh, safety? How many of us uh, live in a home that we built with our own hands? Not many of us. You see, we can come to where we can just take life so for granted that we forget that all of it's a gift from God. And that's why I encourage every person who has never been on an international mission trip to go. To see how more than two-thirds of the world lives and how different Edmund really is. How easy we have it. And it's easy to forget that all of this is a gift. Your health is a gift. Your life is a gift. Your family is a gift. Your home is a gift. The water that you drink is a gift. The food that you eat is a gift. And when life gets easy, we forget that we need God. And then it gets really dangerous. It gets really dangerous. Because this is what happens. Why is God so particular about always being first in our lives? Because when life gets easy, we forget that it's from him. Because our Lord and Master has many enemies. Many enemies. We forget that God has enemies. And we have enemies if we follow God. And we get our rear ends kicked and we find ourselves in a lot of pain. And sometimes those we love are thrown into that pain with us when we get in these times of relative ease and prosperity, we relax and we take these gifts for granted. I came across this quote this week when I was studying, and it really haunts me because it's true, and I know it's true in my bones. Um, Ronald Clements is a professor of Old Testament. He's given his life to studying these texts that I'm sharing with you today. He's in London. He writes this. He says, in such a circumstance, our circumstance, a belief could arise. It might just arise, right, that the requirements of God, the divine law, were no longer important. You, you've been there? You've been, you've been bouncing along? Now, I liken it like this. You know, you've been on a diet for seven days, you've lost 14 pounds, and there's a donut. You're like, it won't hurt. It's fine. It's one donut. Who cares? And then next thing you know, oh yeah, the whole dozen's gone, right? And you're off the wagon, right? Just kaboom, right? Now he says, no, 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 no look, you, you might fall into this false sense that that god is no longer important god's laws are no longer important you know sabbath is only for those people who don't have a big deal on the table that day right it was it really matter if your kid says god when he's frustrated right it matters is it and could be safely set aside you just set aside the things of god because you know your life's pretty good you're, you're doing pretty good so there could there could emerge an attitude of indifference to god himself to God's loss, to what God has given you for your good, and a feeling that God's gifts, having once been received, would not subsequently be taken away. And friends, that is a lie. This whole thing of once saved, always saved, if you think about God, you're good no matter your activity or your behavior, that's not true. It's not true. God says, follow me, I will save you. You are saved by my grace, but my grace requires that you then live for me. Now that, you know, now that we're in a relationship, your, your faith, now that I, you are saved, the response is living for me. Right? And this is really hard in Western Christianity revivalism, where if you say a couple of magic words or you think the right thoughts, that somehow your life is going to be golden. Jesus never teaches that. What Jesus teaches is follow me. He doesn't say think about me. He says follow me. Do what I do. Say what I say. Do the things that I do. And then I'll know that you love me. I'll know that you love me. So it's really important that we make sure we don't forget how we got there. It's by God's grace, by God's gift. And because that's true, because it's all grace, that requires our effort then to follow Jesus, to do the things he asks us to do, to really do them. It's the way that we live out the faith that he's given us. And we can't earn it. Don't, don't mishear me. We're saved completely by God's love and redemption. But because that's true, we have to live differently. 
It requires our effort, all that we have. So Jesus says it like this. You want to follow me? This is what it is, the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. How much of your heart? And all your soul, how much? All your mind, every bit of it, how much? And how much of your strength? All of it. These are Jesus' own words. And he says, this is the first thing. This is the one thing. This is the only thing you have to get. But you have to get it. It's so important. And here's, here's the thing about it, friends. In 2017, you won't grow closer to Jesus by accident. You're not going to wake up on February 2nd and go, huh, I'm closer to Jesus. Who knew? It just doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. It's not by accident, friends. It's not by accident. And it's not alone. We not, none of us do this alone. When I was at Farmhouse Fraternity, I, I had the most really bizarre experience in my life. I went to school at Oklahoma State. And uh, this is our little fraternity pick. Aren't we cute? Um, here's me. Uh, I'm a junior there. And um, one of the things that was interesting about Farmhouse in those days was that since its founding, for the next 70 plus years, they were always topping grades. They never lost grades, not one year. They were the very top fraternity on campus, 70 years straight, the highest GPA. And friends, that didn't happen by accident. And so I, I did summer school, and I happened to make two A's in summer school, which I, was, I felt really blessed because I wasn't that great of a student in high school. Uh, you know, A's and B's, and you know, just try to make it through. And, and I felt like my sister was a lot smarter than me, and other people were a lot smarter than me. Um, and so I got, I got there, um, and they, one of the things I found out that, that worked for them uh, is that they made us make a grade chart. Have y'all ever done that? They made us give them to the scholarship chairman every syllabus from every class. And they wrote down every test, every quiz, every paper, every assignment that was due and when it was. And so there was a person overseeing your grades with you. And they made sure that you turned everything in, that you were studying, that if, if you had a test on Friday, you weren't at the weed on Thursday, you were studying. And, and they knew what your grades were every week all the way through. And, by the way, if you, fall, if you would fall below a two-point, they just kicked you out of the house. Like, you're gone. And so it's pretty easy to have a high grade point if nobody's allowed to live there who's below a low grade point. And I was like, huh. And so I remember doing this. It took me probably 10, 12 hours to lay out everything for the whole semester. It was exhausting. I was like, really? This is kind of nuts. And I did it, and, and I knew that one of the classes was a weed-out class in the journalism school. And so I said that my goal was a 3.83. That was going to be my goal. And I felt like that was pretty dicey as it was. Like, whew. And I remember these two seniors walked into my room, and they pulled my grade chart off the wall, and they ripped it up, and they threw it on the ground in front of me. I was like, hey, that's my grade chart. What are you doing? And they said, no, that's not, that's not your goal. Your goal is not a 3.83. I'm like, yes, it is. They're like, no, it's not. I'm like, yes, it is. I said, well, then, then what is my goal, since you know me so well, having known me three weeks? And they said, your goal is a four-point. You already have six hours of four-point, so your goal is a four-point. I said, but nobody makes a four-point their freshman year as a pledge and in this class. And I'm like, that's your goal, and, and you better get it. I was like, oh. So at the end of the semester, uh, I had a 383. And, uh, and I made the B in the class that I knew I was going to have a B in. It was, it was, it was finals, uh, and I knew every grade that I had, and it, it, I had like an 88.5 in the class. You had to have a 93 for an A, uh, and that was it. I was like, those suckers. See, I feel bad about myself, the whole thing. They shouldn't have made me fail, blah, blah, blah. And then I got my grades in the mail. And you know what? I had a four point. That 88.5 was the highest grade in the class. He rounded me up to the A. I was the only A in the class. And so I had a four point. And it just got worse from there. Because the next semester I said, I'm going to make a three five. They're like, no, you're making a four point. 
And you know, I graduated from undergrad with a four point. Because of what the other people allowed me to see what was possible. The other people that came alongside me and said, no, you're not going out tonight, you're studying tonight. No, you're not going to do this, you're going to do that, because that's what's best for you. Not by accident, not alone. Does it see how this works? And when other people are doing this, you're doing that. And you know what happened next, by the grace of God? My entire graduate school, from my Master of Divinity, which allows me to be your pastor, free. So when we graduated from seminary, we had zero dollars of debt. And very few people find that luxury. But I credit that not to me, but that the grace of God surrounded me by guys who had a vision greater than I did. Does this make sense? They, they saw something in me that I couldn't even see in myself. And God sees things in you you can't see for yourself. And your small group can, your church community can, the people around you can, but you have to do it in community. You can't do it alone. You're not going to grow closer by accident and not by alone. So let me ask you this. What is your rule of life? That's how the monastic communities would say, what's your rule of life? So that doesn't matter whether you're in Vegas or you're in Alabama or you're in Oklahoma, you're the same person. What's your rule? When this happens, how do you respond? You already know that. You know it cold. You know what you're doing on Thursday nights. You know what you're doing on Sunday mornings. You know what that looks like. It's your rule of life. This is what you do. This is who you are. And that doesn't really change much. Another way of saying it is, what's your plan? What is your plan to do everything that Christ has commanded you to do? How are you going to look like Jesus this year? What's your plan for that? Right? It's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen alone. And you say, well, wait, 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 wait. It's not one size fits all. I mean, we're not doing uniformity. We're not, you know, robots. What, what? Hold on. Okay. Fair enough. So I'll, I'll give you three for today to consider as your action step. Any of y'all have this deal where other people tell you who you are? Uh, maybe it's your mom or your spouse or your kids or your boss, and you just don't feel like you've ever really come into your own. You have these, you know, and you're trying to live for somebody else. The corrective for that, friends, is solitude. Where you intentionally say, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to be in the sound of anybody's voice. I'm going to turn off my phone and I'm going to be in complete silence, not see another person in solitude. I'm not going to speak to anyone for a set period of time. And you know what you find there? You're not alone. God's with you. And he knows who you are and he tells you who you are. And you're good. You're very good, actually, according to Genesis. And he loves you just as you are. And loves you enough not to leave you there, but to draw you forward in his love. And that might help you this year. Now, what if um, you're somebody who hustles for their worth, right? Your identity is in your job. Uh, you feel like uh, you know who you are because you make X dollars or you have that title, right? Any of you all feel like that sometimes? Where you're, really, you're hustling and if you're not turning out the money or turning out the deal or turning out the work, then you're not worth as much? Sabbath is your corrective. It allows you to know that once every seven days, God has gotten you. He, he's taken good care of you. His hands are very, very big. And you can rest for a 24-hour period, and the world will not end, with or without you. You're simply living in his hands, and Sabbath will help that for you. And some of you are like, okay, man, this was the worst sermon ever. I hate this. I know all this stuff. I have it all figured out. And if that's you, and you know everything that I've just said, then I've got a sixth-grade boys' Sunday school class for you. And I guarantee you, 40 seconds in, your mind will be blown. And you'll be like, what? Where am I? Well, I don't know anything. Right? Community does that for you. For, for those of us, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, friends. You know, you go into that party or that thing or that group of people, and you kind of withdraw yourself because you're so smart and you got it all figured out. And then you find somebody else who's equally smart to you, and then you just dog everybody else about how stupid it is, the thing that you're sitting through. Anybody ever done that? Well, that's cheap. That's easy. And there's no growth there. It's deadly, actually. You're already dead when you do that. There's no life there. 
Well, that's, a, that's a chump deal. Right? What God calls us to is to engage. If you know it 